to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we pay tribute to the late, great crooner Tony Bennett and a career that spanned more than seven decades. He passed away uh, in New York on Friday at the age of 96, just a few weeks shy of his 97th birthday. From singing duets with Rosemary Clooney when she was in her 20s to Celine Dion when she was in her 20s. That's just how long and successful his career was. We speak to biographer Daniel Evanier about what gave Bennett his long-lasting appeal. We unwrap the saucy story behind how a truly amazing-looking Donaire costume wound up on a Government of Alberta auction site and then turned into an absolute sensation. Bids by Friday night were up above $16,000, can you imagine? But where did the costume come from? Why? And how did it wind up in the government's hands? But first, Canada has launched several new immigration-based initiatives to try to attract highly skilled tech talent to this country, and one of them is causing quite a stir in the U.S. This country opened up 10,000 spaces for holders of U.S. H-1B visas. Those are given to skilled temporary workers. They got that number of applications, Canada did, in just hours between Sunday and Monday. So it, it maxed out in a day. Why is it so popular, and what benefits will it bring to Canada? The food could be part of the attraction uh, for people wanting to come to this country. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Canada's ambitious immigration targets in general terms. Uh, but there is a specific uh, initiative that's underway that's received quite a lot of attention of late. Uh, and one part of it, a lot of attention in the U.S. A few weeks ago, the federal immigration minister introduced what he called the country's first strategy to attract foreign tech workers in what Sean Fraser called a race for the global tech talent pool. It's made up of several components, including a digital nomad strategy, which promotes Canada as a great place for those who can work anywhere to work uh, remotely, uh, and lifting certain requirements around hiring foreign tech workers. Here is Sean Fraser describing the rationale behind the whole initiative at a conference in Toronto late last month. We're actually going to be creating a pool of talent that's going to set the stage for more companies to call Canada home in the long term. So when I think about the 10, 20, 30 year horizon rather than the next few months or even the next election cycle, there's no question in my mind having more talented tech entrepreneurs and professionals in this country is going to be a, a very good thing uh, half a generation from now. And the flip side of that coin, if we choose not to embrace the opportunity that this moment uh, represents, uh, we're going to miss out on uh, what could be a, a genera generational opportunity to pursue economic growth in a sector of strategic importance to Canada. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, late last month, talking about this plan to attract more tech workers to this country. One part of the plan has, has gotten a lot of attention, and here's why. It targets those who hold a specific visa in the U.S. called an H-1B, uh, which allows foreign nationals to work temporarily in America in certain specialized occupations, including high tech. Now, as of Sunday, a process was put in place to allow 10,000 H-1B visa holders in the U.S. to come to work here. Uh, they figured, here, we'll, we'll put it in place, it'll be temporary, we'll open it up for a year or until it reaches 10,000 applicants. Sounds logical, right? Imagine this, the latter happened on Monday. So less than 24 hours after it was opened, it was full. And that even left Twitter and Tesla owner Elon Musk almost speechless, for him at least. Uh, he simply tweeted the word, wow. Now, the Council of Canadian Innovators provided several of the recommendations that have fueled these changes that I've been talking about. And the Council's President, Benjamin Bergen, joins me now. Uh, ben, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was an interesting one. I mean, just in general, I know that you had that you were an integral part of of, of seeing this whole initiative come true. It, it, it feels like something that needs to be done. What what about the timing? Why now? 
Yeah. So um, before we just jump into the timing component, you know, my understanding is you're going to be talking about interesting ingredients that you're, you put on sandwiches or donairs. Well, absolutely. If you want like to jump at the donair, then by all means. I would, <laughs> I would just first like to get out that I like to put peanut butter on my hamburger. Uh, really? Not sweetened peanut butter, just like unsweetened. And it makes it almost a bit like a Thai, a Thai burger. So that wow. is my one, my one kind of unique uh, ingredient that I sometimes pull out that causes heads to turn. So, so I just natural I peanut butter, natural peanut butter on a burger. Natural peanut butter, yeah. Sometimes wow. crunchy, sometimes smooth, depending how how creative I'm feeling. Well, what kind of looks do you get when that happens? When you do that sort of, oh, when, you, when you pull that one out? <laughs> there, there's a, there's a reason I'm still single. It's, it sounds, but you're right. When you describe it as a Thai kind of thing, it actually yeah. sounds really delicious. It sounds really it good. It is. It is. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to, you know what? I'll have to give it a try. I'll have to give yeah, it a add try. Some, add, some, uh, add some cilantro and some, uh, and some mint. But let's get back to your actual uh, Yes. You know, yes. Okay. We'll Why go back now? to the other. Why, Why now? now? There you, you can, go. You can have me on here all day. I promise. <laughs> um, but uh, why now? So in 2022, Talent was the major issue for scaling technology companies in Canada. Talent was being hoovered up left and right by huge uh, U.S. foreign multinationals. People could work remote. And in essence, we put together a document to the federal government outlining areas where they could actually increase um, talent into this country. And highly skilled workers in the tech ecosystem is like jet fuel. It's what powers companies to sort of move forward. So if you have the best and the brightest, you really have the opportunity to build successful technology companies at scale and grow. It's why places like Silicon Valley and Boston and New York have such advantages because you've got that really amazing talent that begins to pool there. And so what we saw really kind of happen over the last year was these sort of massive layoffs from right. some of these large tech firms. Um, but those were predominantly, or not predominantly, a lot of them were immigrants who basically had these H-1B visas that expire if you lose your job uh, after a certain period of time. And so what we really communicated to the government was there's a really good opportunity for us to, you know, find some really highly skilled workers that potentially are not going to want to return to their country of origin. You know, imagine you're a queer person from Iran working in San Francisco. Do you really want to return back to Iran? Answer probably no. And so we pitched it to the government as a way of finding really uh, high, high skilled workers that, you know, may take a little bit of time to find a job, probably have, uh, you know, a, a decent amount of money that they've saved and accrued over time, but are keen to come to a place that has the values that we as Canadians value and share. And so it was one of those moments where you have a U.S. immigration system that candidly is, is marred in delays and timelines and issues. Um, and you've got a Canadian government that is responsive, robust, and really looking to try and capitalize on figuring out how we can get highly skilled workers here. I, I was surprised by just how much coverage it was getting in the U.S., how much, at least in the tech community, how much it was being talked about. And then, of course, because of that, the fact that they had the 10,000 applicants within, you know, it looked like within hours, right? It was, it was it, it, the system couldn't handle them fast enough. That was the only reason it took 24 hours. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because sort of initially when we put, you know, this type of suggestion forward, it was a little bit balked at in terms of would it be popular. Um, mm. But we actually had some data points showing that it would be popular. Uh, and this really goes back to when President Trump was elected and he uh, implemented, if, if you recall, that 
Muslim ban, not a Muslim ban, where I think it was 13 right, countries that basically that it, they had created that ban. At that time, uh, the Council of Canadian Innovators again mobilized and really tried to help attract and bring those highly skilled workers, you know, people working in Harvard and MIT uh, to come to this country. And we saw a huge uptake of people looking at being really interested in coming to Canada. And so by, you know, creating this opening, um, you know, we, we've really been able to capitalize on it. So it's positive to see, obviously, that those 10,000 spots have been, um, you know, already filled. Um, and it looks like, you know, from what I've been seeing from Minister Sean Fraser, that they're looking to double down on that and, and potentially look at increasing um, the number of H-1B visas that can come here. And, and you've got to remember that these are extremely highly skilled workers uh, and, and the, the U.S. system has already vetted them. So it, it's already sort of getting uh, the creme de la creme of, uh, of tech workers. And it's estimated by 2025 that we're going to have a shortage in this country of 250,000 uh, tech workers. So thinking about programmers, AI experts, um, you know, this kind of goes on. So this is a great, um, a really great uh, way to help mitigate and help build uh, Canadian capacity and, and, and grow Canada's economy. Did it create, I mean, I remember when Alberta went looking for workers from other provinces and that, that created, a, it did create real bad blood, but it created a bit, you know, there's a few eyebrows raised in the areas where those commercials were running. I think they were running in Toronto as well as out here on the yeah. West Coast. Um, I mean, some of the some of the reaction in the U.S. was a bit like, hey, wait a second, you know, we're meant to be friends. Why are you coming, taking our tech workers away? But the way you've explained it, I mean, these are clearly, a lot of these tech workers will be people who, who need new jobs and therefore, and I think they get 40,000 H-1B um, visa uh, acceptances a year in the U.S. So it's not like there's a shortage of employees. They're getting a lot of people coming in. Correct. I mean, and let's be honest, you know, the Americans have been poaching a lot of Canadians for a long period uh, of time as well. So, you know what, if we can uh, give as good as we get now and again, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. You know, what I would say, um, and, you know, I did do a bit of uh, U.S. media over the last, you know, kind of 48 hours. And I think the sense for the Americans really is that, their system is broken. Their immigration system is really broken, and it's broken for you know a number of reasons. One, anti-immigration sentiments that exist within certain political parties, but also a bureaucracy that is slow, um, you know, still re- requiring faxes and, and other sort of absurd you know right. technologies from, from from sort of the '90s. And so, you know, here Canada really is being seen as uh, progressive. Uh, open and really um, moving quickly uh, in a moment to kind of capitalize on something. So I think the American sense that I was getting on some of the shows that I was on was a bit of an e-god, like, you know, what's going on and I know we're going to lose our talent. The one, the one thing just to kind of pull in as well, which is kind of a fun stat, is that 80% of uh, the unicorn companies uh, that are privately held in the United States either were founded or have an immigrant uh, at the top of its leadership right. role. Um, so these are, you know, these are real uh, uh, economic uh, and um, uh, drivers of, uh, you know, of the U.S. tech sector. So us being able to pull some of those people, I think will really bode well for us as a country. 
Council Canadian Innovators President Benjamin Bergen is with us this half hour. We're talking about efforts by Canada to attract more tech talent to this country. Many things in the works. One that's been getting a lot of attention is trying to lure H-1B visa holders. These are uh, people holding temporary work visas in America. Highly skilled uh, workers they are. And uh, 10,000 people applied in almost 24 hours uh, earlier this week for those positions. And uh, maybe perhaps uh, the immigration minister will open up a few more. Uh, Ben, you mentioned it. I mean, just the sheer number of tech workers we're going to need. How are we doing on the domestic side and trying to foster some of that talent ourselves? I mean, I understand the need to bring other people in as well, but sometimes it leads people to think, well, wait a second, are we not doing a good enough job in our own schools these days? Yeah, so look, you know, um, at the Council of Canadian Innovators, we've always pushed for, you know, increasing capacity in a lot of our uh, academic institutions and looking at even, you know, areas around micro-credentialing and how do we you know, upskill and, and retrain people who are maybe working in industries that, that are potentially struggling and, and sort of need to be reimagined. So government put funding and, and money towards definitely some of those uh, some of those areas. Um, and, you know, in our uh, skills and talents uh, strategy, which we submitted in 2022, which helped spur uh, the announcement that, you know, obviously we're talking about, we look at some of those, you know, areas like, you know, co-ops and, and other, uh, other uh, skills that could be used. But one thing I would just um, kind of highlight is in Canada, uh, we're actually quite good at, at, at starting, you know, companies. But where we really struggle is actually to scale them up. So how do you get a company right. from $10 million in revenue to $100 million to a billion and kind of beyond? And a lot of the tech workers that we do need to bring in are these really highly skilled workers who have done that, who have figured out how to scale a company. And because, you know, as a country, we just traditionally struggled in that space, there aren't a lot of those specific individuals. And so, you know, part of what's exciting about this particular piece is you are going to be getting folks who have done that, folks who have grown technology firms uh, into into sort of larger uh, larger companies. And so I think that inflow will be will be really, really positive for the country. Right. And no doubt that inflow also that inflow also opens up more opportunities for Canadians to go work for people who've had that kind of experience, which in of itself is going to be a good thing. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, we've got a couple of really great stories uh, at the Council of Canadian Innovators where one sort of, you know, amazing CTO was brought into uh, a domestic Canadian tech company. And, you know, in the span of about a year, 100 people were sort of hired around that individual. So it really acts as not only a way for our company to grow, but also to educate through, you know, an actual practitioner what a company really needs. And look, academic institutions in this country are phenomenal. They're wonderful. Um, But where they do struggle is helping on the commercialization component. How do you actually sell that really good idea? How do you sell that really great uh, product? And so that's where, um, you know, I think this type of immigration is really, really helpful for Canada where you're seeing individuals who have actually done it and lived it, um, being able to come here and help uh, really work with uh, our domestic um, uh, Canadians in terms of building, uh, building companies. Yeah. Well, uh, Ben, uh, thank you so much for this. I, I, you know, even Elon Musk reacted to it, which was interesting in of itself. And I will forever remember the peanut butter on the, on the hamburger. I can't. That's, that's, uh, you got me there. That's the first, the first I'd ever heard of it. So I'm going to try it out. Great, 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 great. Well, thanks for having me and uh, have us back anytime. 
This is one of these remarkable stories that make you happy to be alive sometimes. Social media can still be a good thing. It can still be a good thing. Um, if you haven't heard it, I'll, I'll explain it as much as I can. Um, earlier this week, the government of Alberta's auction website listed the strangest looking thing, a full body donair costume, a wrap, essentially. It had the foil, it had the lettuce, it had the sliced meat or the shaved meat, the sauce, all of it. It is looks strikingly like a donair. And people were like, well, how did that end up? What is it? How did it end up there? It, it's become such a sensation since that um, that the, the bids for it are now up, up, up of, last I looked up, above $16,000. Different Donair restaurants from the East Coast, from Edmonton, are all competing against each other to bring this one home because it's become such a big deal. And someone decided, intelligently, someone decided to dust off the costume and tow it out to uh, a taste of Edmonton yesterday. Global news cameras were there to catch it all. Have a listen. And we're down here at Taste of Edmonton. I've already got my lemonade. There's a lot of desire for a lot of food, but we've also got the most in-demand treat of all. Yes, it is the Donaire, the one and only. There's a lot going on down here tonight. We'll have more highlights coming up. All right, let's quickly go back to uh, Taste of Edmonton for some breaking news here. Our cameras have spotted the Premier. She's on site in Churchill Square grabbing... A Donair, of course, uh, playing off the excitement over that giant Donair costume being uh, auctioned off. I mean, you, you almost can't make this one up. Uh, but someone who sort of spotted it early and has been integral, has found out, has unwrapped this story around the wrap is Catherine Krakowski. She's the Alberta legislature reporter for Alberta Today. And again, really the first to call attention to this one. Catherine, thank you so much. Thanks for having me back, Ben. Yeah, summertime, eh? Summertime when you're a ledge reporter, there's not much to talk about. And then all of a sudden, there's your Donair costume on the auction site. Where did it come from? Yeah, I was I was actually browsing the auction site. And um, normally, there's sometimes stories, like once the government accidentally put up a friendship bell from South Korea on there. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, I was browsing the site and there, there was this, Donair costume in the oddities section, and I thought that is just too weird, so I have to share. And of course, um, the obvious follow-up is why did the government have a Donair costume? <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's a great-looking costume. I mean, it is the first time I because I follow you on Twitter when you post. It, I'm like, that is really realistic-looking. If you know what a Donair yeah. looks like, obviously. Oh yeah, the sauce and all—it's—it's it's, and it's not the thing you is, that is mass produced and you just can pull off the shelf. It was actually built in a Hollywood studio, and this this same company um, made the helmets for Daft Punk, and right. they are working on the Chucky show, like very high quality suit. So how did it end up? How did it end up in Alberta? First of all, because I gather it had something to do with a um, with a uh, drug driving campaign. Is that right? Yeah. So so. It was all part of this campaign conceived of by the Office of Traffic Safety, and um, it was in 2015, um, ahead of the legalization of cannabis. And the, de- the department had decided, well, we should probably bring attention to the fact that driving while high is not a good thing. So the ad agency pitched this idea that um, there should be a talking donor. Like and and it has a name. Its name is the Wise Donair. The Wise so Donair. The, 
The wise donor. It's it's not just any donor. It is the wise donor. It's the Steve Buscemi like how do you do, fellow kids type yeah. of um type of character. And and so these stoners who have the munchies want to go out to get some greasy, delicious food. But the wise donor warns you: don't drive while high. And right. so that was that, that was concept. Yeah, <laughs> it was scrap. It never made it though, right? That said commercial was. We never did see the wise donor on the big screen, did we? No, and and I was trying to figure it out because there was a don't donair and drive, but that was distracted driving. Um, but we we never saw this costume, so I I actually spoke to the transportation minister at the time, uh, former minister Brian Mason, and he said, "Well, there these guys in suits who had probably never consumed the substance came right. up with this concept that you hallucinate." And he thought it was too silly for the serious topic, and so he axed it at the yeah, yeah a, right. a talking donor that you hallucinate while high. And, and and then I guess because it was their initiative, because I, I I thought they contracted this stuff out, but I guess they how do they wind up with the donor costume? How does the government wind up with this donor costume? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, the government paid for it; they bought for it. The commercial was just about ready to go when uh, the minister pulled the plug. So they had. Because, um, I mean, it was kind of straddling the time. It, it came to uh, conception under the PC government, and then it was around for the NDP government, and then it was scrapped. But it had already got so far along in the process that it was, it had already right. been made. So it was there. Right. So it was just sitting so, in a box. <laughs> right. And, and they decided to put it up for sale. The reaction to it has been unbelievable because, of course, because you you alerted us to it so early, I sort of saw it when it was just up at, you know, four or five hundred bucks, uh, maybe even less. And now it's at 16 grand. Who's fighting over it? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, it, it, what I saw was 150. Now it's uh, 16 grand. It, it has become a bidding war. Atlantic versus Prairie Donair shops. And uh, they were using proxy bids, so they'd automatically get $5 one up on each other within seconds of an, the other shop placing the bid. So it's, it's the, uh, the Halifax shop are threatening to rip out the lettuce because lettuce on a Donair from the original point of view is sacrilegious. It's blasphemous. And so the, the Alberta Donair shops are like, hey, you may have, you may have, invented it but we perfected it you know the green offsets the offsets the donair it's it has brought it into perfect balance so they are fighting over it in, so, in so the we have, yeah on either side from from the home of the, the home of the donair in halifax at least by canadian standards and then at edmonton they're fighting over over this costume it is a remarkable story the lettuce thing is even is even funnier because i mean i don't know i grew up in montreal and and what we have that approximates the donair there are many things but uh, there is no lettuce in it there never has been so i i, I kind of side with the donair ones but that with the halifax folks but why would you destroy that awesome costume why would you pull the pull the lettuce out and it made an appearance last night at taste of edmonton which was even funnier yeah, and well, actually, I was at a chamber lunch with the premier beforehand, and she joked like, "Oh, for some reason, I'm craving donairs. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go get one." And she wasn't joking. She she got that donair, and she was chomping down on the donair, and the donair costume was the man man or woman in the costume was keeping a respectful distance, didn't want to be next, I guess, <laughs> walking behind the premier. But eventually, they were holding hands. And and I was, everyone's like, oh, give the staffer a race. Whoever decided to bring, haul it out of the warehouse and and bring it with the premier. But I I was told it was actually the premier's idea to take a stroll with the donor. 
really well. Yeah, that's yeah. a wise. The wise donor taking a tour with the, the wise donors. So what next? I guess we're waiting for the bidding to close, and that's that's extended, right? It's like 20, 24 more days or something, and this yeah, can go on for yeah. a while. So uh, surplus sales determined due to the rarity of the item. <laughs> it will um, be yeah full full month of bidding. So August fourteenth, we will decide how far this goes. But I mean, in the in the sixteen thousand dollar territory, uh, you could get one made with or without lettuce. You could have it have it your way. <laughs> yeah, you could have it custom made. Uh, Catherine, custom as, made. as always, you know what would we do without a good ledge reporter digging through sites like that? Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony Bennett. Yeah, you recognize that voice right away. He passed away today in New York City, the place he always called home, even though that was his big hit. Uh, He never did, I think, live in San Francisco, but uh, he was just a few weeks shy of his 97th birthday. Uh, The crooner that no less than Frank Sinatra once called the best singer in the business back in the 60s. He released some 70 albums over his long and glorious career. He counted 20 Grammys uh, to his name. Uh, He was born Anthony Dominic uh, Benedetto back in August 3rd, 1926 in Queens. Uh, He grew up in Astoria, working class neighborhood. He served in the Second World War. I didn't know that until today when I was looking it up, even at the liberation of uh, concentration camps, including the subcamp of Dachau, uh, which, you know, impacted him for the rest of his life in many ways. Remarkably, he perhaps saw his greatest successes later in life, beginning with the release of his MTV Unplugged album in 1994. He followed that up with hugely popular duets with just about anybody you could think of, including a whole bunch of Canadians, Celine Dion, Michael Bublé, Katie Lang, Diana Krall. Uh, and of course, his um, his union with Lady Gaga was something to behold. Here's their cheek to cheek. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And the cares that hung around me through the week seemed to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak. When we're out together, dancing cheek to cheek. Uh, He spoke with ABC's Bill Deal a while ago and talked about how he planned to continue making music as long as he could and how he wanted to be remembered. I like working. Uh, I'm one of these rare animals that I, I think it's very healthy to work. I think everybody should do that. Well, I'd like to be remembered as a good singer and a good painter. I can't ask for more than that. I've been a very fortunate guy. Yeah, a good singer and a good painter. I think he was, I mean, obviously, he's being remembered today as both. David Evanier is author of All the Things You Are, The Life of Tony Bennett, and he joins me now. David, thanks so much. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it felt like he was around forever, right, Tony Bennett? There wasn't a time that he wasn't sort of in the background somewhere. What was his appeal? Because his voice, I mean, it's been pointed out a lot today that he didn't have the most spectacular voice, but there was something about his honesty that was hard hard to replicate and hard to describe even. Well, there was a lot, uh, many elements to it. Uh, there was an intimacy. Uh, there was a warmth. Uh, he invited you in. Uh, and uh, there was a passion to his voice. Also, uh, it was a, it was like a working class voice. It had some gravel in it. It had the New York streets in it. Um, and it had a lot of life experience in it. Um, he was someone who made you feel like he was a friend. Yeah. It, it was amazing today to see the tributes to him because I mean, the impact that he had, you saw artists, young, old, and everything in between from every genre you can think of paying tribute to him today. He had so much respect in within amongst other musicians, obviously. Yeah. He had a universal appeal and he had an appeal to all ages. And, uh, he somehow was able to, uh, uh, 
go beyond uh, the, these different categories because uh, rock and roll, uh, doo-wop, all these different uh, song genres, uh, he, he, uh, he was affected by them, but he kept going, doing his own great American songbook, and, uh, uh, and he appealed to each generation, uh, partly because he never really grew old. Uh, there was a simplicity and a curiosity about him. Uh, people would see him walking on the street in Manhattan, never had any bodyguards. Uh, he would he would paint in Central Park across from his apartment. People would see him painting. Uh, there was a sense in which he was a very accessible human being. Yeah, I, I was noticing like there were never any Tony Bennett disco records. Like I mean, there was he didn't he 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 respected. The, the music, he respected his audience, and the respect was reciprocated, it seemed. He never compromised. Uh, there were periods when he was at Columbia, when Mitch Miller was trying to get him to do genre songs, uh, and uh, he uh, it, it enraged him. Uh, and he had a very, uh, he had a great Italian temper. I mean, he, he had that passion, and it was a passion for, for uh for art, for beautiful, for beautiful things, and he he refused to uh, to tarnish that 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 image of himself, which he took very seriously. Uh, it was partly his uh, his his feeling for the Italian tradition. I mean, he grew up uh, in a family w- where they would have musicals on Saturday afternoons and have the children sing. Uh, his father was a singer, although he worked as, in a grocery, but. Uh, he he was nurtured by uh, the Italian tradition and uh, and also the Italian character. I mean, he he particularly loved uh, uh, the films of Rossellini uh, right. and Fellini and De Sica. Um, Tony uh, was very proud of his Italian heritage, and uh, and it was a very musical heritage and a humanist heritage. You know, you you spent all that time sort of. In in the life when you know when you when you write a, a book as you have you spend a lot of time finding out things about about the subject that you're writing about. What did you think about today when you heard that he had passed? Because obviously you know lots of things that other people wouldn't. Well, I was amazed, uh, even with all I know about him, uh, when I really thought about all he had accomplished. Uh, it really was an incredible career, and uh, uh, of course, I also thought I was somewhat sad that. He really never let me in uh, on a personal level. Uh, so uh, I wrote a book which is basically very intimate about him because I interviewed his family. I mean, his sister. I traveled to London and interviewed uh, his manager, uh, Derek Bolton, who had been his manager for many years. Uh, the book is kind of a, a love letter to, to Tony uh, and uh, uh, an objective one. But but nevertheless, uh Really, really does uh, give him, you know, proper credit for all he accomplished. So all these things are running through my mind. I often thought about wishing I'd run into him in Central Park where he painted, uh, right. because that would have been my only way to continue to have access to him. I so I I wrote a very intimate book uh, about him uh, uh, without having uh, the access to him that I wanted. I did meet meet with him. But it was it was they were short encounters. 
Yeah. It's remarkable, though, I was reading about this again today, that over the course of his many, many years in the spotlight, that there was very little negative publicity about him, that he managed to sort of just stay slightly away. And you mentioned his his accessibility, his honesty, but also how he managed just to take a slight step back from maybe the fray, so to speak. Well, of course, he, he was very concerned about uh, the image of, of, the, of Italians, and he, he loved his, his heritage. And, uh, he, you know, he, he really despised the, uh, the idea of tarnishing Italians with uh, the gangster image because of, uh, you know, people who were, were right. known to be in show business. Uh, Tony, uh, I've written biographies of three Italian singers, and uh, the other two were Bobby Darin and Jimmy Roselli. No one could avoid the... Uh, the role of the mafia in in, uh, in the music business because they were everywhere, and uh, they were they were they ran the nightclubs, and uh, they they liked the music. So uh, uh, Tony was very sensitive to that and very very intent on on keeping his own you know image uh, as as pure as possible. It was impossible to circumvent these guys, and he did have encounters with them. But essentially, he, he, he stayed true to himself, and there, there's just nothing really blemished in, in, in his biography. No. A favorite song, David? Do you have one? I do. Uh, it's a lesser-known one. Uh, Irving Berlin's uh, I Got Lost in Her Arms, uh, a very beautiful uh, rendition by Tony. And, of course, uh, the two albums in particular, the later ones, his comeback albums, The Art of Excellence, and the Astoria album, which shows him, it's kind of an autobiographical album, it shows him in front of his house in Astoria, where he grew up in Queens. Uh, and uh, it shows on, on one side of the album, Tony standing in front of the house when he was a little boy. And on the David, other side is Tony, Tony today. David, or, or Andrew, thank, you, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Let's head to Florida now because I don't know if you've been seeing the stories about how hot the water is off the coast of southern Florida, particularly. Uh, earlier this week in a place called Virginia Key, uh, measurements from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration show that the water temperature last Saturday hit a record 92.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 33.6 Celsius. That's like bath water. Here's uh, the NOAA. Here's what they had to say. Even when we're out working on the reefs, we're collecting temperature data and we're seeing temperatures even 60 feet down are in the high 80s, which is getting really close to the point where corals begin to experience damage from that heat. You can see that a lot of the marine life is sort of left for deeper waters. I mean, you, you can tell that it's really taking its toll. Well, NOAA scientists have tracked a steady climb in ocean temperatures uh, since April of 2023, and that's a, a, over a pretty wide area, the Caribbean Basin, including the waters uh, surrounding Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, and also further north, right in the northeast U.S., here off the Canadian uh, Atlantic or the Canadian East Coast. Um, researchers, researchers say in Atlantic marine districts, sea surface temperatures in July reached record highs, especially in the areas of Grand Banks. Uh, the waters off the south, shores of, south shore of Nova Scotia 
it's up by but two degrees this year. Last year's record was 15.5. That was a record. And this year in July, it's at 17.4. So add it all up and the oceans are really, really warm. Why and what could the short and long-term impacts be? Joining me now is NOAA's Jackie Delacour, who is an operations manager with the NOAA's Coral Reef Watch. Jackie, thank you. Thank you for having me today, Ben. It's a pleasure. This has really been... Uh, Attention grabbing. I think uh, I was actually we were we were in Key West and and sort of South Florida over the holidays, Christmas holidays, and they had a sort of unseasonally cold snap. The water was freezing. Now it's soupy, and I'm just wondering what's happening because it it seems just unnaturally warm there. Great question, Ben. Yes, it ha- it has been an unnatural spike in sea surface temperature over the last two weeks. And we had been predicting, we at meaning NOAA Coral Reef Watch, had been predicting since about the March-April timeframe that there would be heat stress in the Florida and Gulf of Mexico, in the Caribbean. But we had not anticipated such a severe spike as quickly as we saw it over the last two weeks and such that the conditions are pretty hot right now in the water along the Florida coast. I saw one scientist refer to it sort of as out of bounds. You know, bonkers, I think, was the word that was used, something <laughs> that, that that the modeling hadn't even thought would be possible other than in, in the rarest of occasions. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I Bonkers? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I know that it is unprecedented what we're seeing right now in the satellite record, which dates back to 1985. So this incredible spike in temperature, especially over the last few days alone, it's not something we've seen in the satellite record to this point. Yeah, for, for a Canadian audience, for, for an American audience, it's obviously it's up around 92, 93 degrees Fahrenheit. For a Canadian audience, that's, you know, 33, 34 degrees, which is remarkable for water, right? I mean, imagine how warm that is. In fact, in some cases, uh, almost as warm as the air temperature. What is happening? Why is it so warm? Basically, what we can see right now is we are in an El Nino. It is a warm phase of the El Nino Southern Oscillation System. But normally, off the coast of Florida, it would drive cooler waters. And so that would show we would be having a, a lower hurricane season and lesser impacts to Florida. But the sea surface temperature has been so hot, as we were saying, since about the March-April timeframe is when it started to elevate. And so because of that, you have all that background heat that's just building and building and building. And then, for example, you you had Saharan dust come over, but it's not settling over much of the region, which would have reduced solar insulation. So the sunlight reflecting back would have been reduced, but that hasn't been happening. And the winds have died down. And so the area is just getting hot and it's staying hot. And it's projected to remain hot for at least the next nine to twelve weeks. Nine and to twelve that, weeks. So the rest yeah. of the summer. The rest of the summer, really. Right. And the the problem is, is that you know Florida usually experiences hot temperatures, but they experience it in about the mid August time frame. This is also unprecedented because it's happened a month early, and so it is hard to project out what actual impacts you're going to see on the coral reefs. But we do not expect it to be positive. Right. I mean, I was going to ask you about the impacts broadly, because we've been talking about, uh, you know, obviously, there's been lots of talk about what this could mean for hurricane season and so on and so forth. But what sort of impacts do we see? Could this cause in the in the short and longer term? I suspect it's an acceleration of things that you're probably already well aware of and have been warning about for quite some time. Correct. Already 
receiving reports from a number of partners and colleagues and peers across Florida, including from the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, the Mission Iconic Reefs Program, Moat Marine Laboratory, multiple universities, that they are starting to see a, a scale of bleaching, anything from paling all the way up to widespread bleaching. Again, this is over a month prior to when you should have seen the heat stress conditions even set in to cause coral bleaching. I would be very happy to point you to my colleagues um, in Florida, the contacts who can speak directly to what they're seeing. But yes, it, there we are starting to see an uptick in bleaching already. Um, that's even impacting not just the hard corals that form the reef substrate, but also some soft corals are being impacted as well. What other impacts uh, are we seeing as well? I mean, I, I realize that that this is um, that we're kind of in uncharted territory to some extent here, given how long and how hot it is and how long it's expected to last. But what are some of the other impacts we could see uh, going forward from this? And I know it's not just Florida, right? I mean, Florida has been sort of the extreme example, but it's been warm everywhere. It's warm all it, up and down the Atlantic. It, it has been. And it's, it's very hard to predict at this time what's going to happen in both the near term and short term, because, for example, if repeated hurricanes come through the area, while they may cause destruction and damage to the reef as well, of course, to the coastal communities, they can also cool the water. So if you have cooling weather patterns, it could mitigate or help to offset the damage that's now being caused by the heat stress. But we have to understand that if that does not happen, then we're fi we're going to be facing fish communities. We'll be moving elsewhere. The water's going to be hot like a bathtub. Humans don't want to be in the water, neither do fish. So they're going to migrate further north. You'll have potentially, again, this is potential, marine mammals changing their migration patterns. You know, it's going to impact everything in the water. You might even see, and this would be a stretch, but maybe a bleaching of a kelp community or seagrass communities. You know, every community is going to react differently, but potentially negatively due to the fact that you're facing off with unprecedented spikes in sea surface temperature that we haven't seen before. Yeah, because I remember out here, I mean, you, you must remember the heat dome. I know it extended as far south as to where you are in Oregon. Obviously, in BC, we had it a few years back and it had a huge impact, even even as the water stayed relatively cold uh, as they are as they are want to be in, the, in, in, in this in this area of the Pacific. It had a huge impact on marine life very quickly. It's a very we forget what a fragile ecosystem it can be and that just a sudden shift like this can have significant damage. Absolutely correct. And the damage doesn't just happen, as you well know, under the water. It, per, you know, it propagates onto land. And that's when you're facing off with issues associated with tourism, with fisheries, with people who rely on these resources specifically for their life, for their cultural ties. You know, and again, the, one of the major losses that could happen if Florida and the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean Sea Reef loss is that you're losing shoreline protection against these horrific storms that will come as well. Right. And so that that barrier, coral reefs are an amazing barrier to land. Jackie Delacour is with the NOAA. She's with the Coral Reef Watch, part of that administration, and also with the University of Maryland's Earth System Science Interdisciplinary Center. Jackie, what, uh, we've been reading a lot in Canada, obviously, about what's happening in the North Atlantic. It's not, in terms of its numbers, it doesn't look as drastic as Florida, for instance, but it is significant. The temperature rise has been significant. And this one was, I gather, a bit stranger because we I don't think they saw it happening earlier in the year. And all of a sudden, here we are. Absolutely correct. Yeah. And you are, because of the El Nino, that 
is the conditions are, are quite prevalent right now. You are seeing significant heating starting to rise in multiple areas of the globe. That is a very valid point, and especially off the eastern tropical Pacific, which I know is on the other side. But yeah. What, when you add that all up, and I know this is a broad question, but when you add that all up, what 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 are the impacts of, of having so much warming going on all at once in our waters? Because we tend to sort of think of them, they're, they're a bit sight unseen at times, right? I mean, if you live on the coast, you're aware of the power of them. But when 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 all your oceans are warming that much that fast, what's going, what, what could happen? That is a great question. If you're talking about impacts to humans, what you would see on land with these increasing sea surface temperatures, the increasing heat in the atmosphere, you'd be facing off potentially with stronger storms, stronger impacts just across the board, potentially heavier rains into a monsoonal seasons. I mean, but under the water, you'd be facing off with quite a bit of damage, potentially. You could have, again, uh, phytoplankton communities would change. You could have potential bleaching of kelp or seagrasses, definitively potential bleaching of corals. That could lead to coral mortality. You could have changing of structures. Commu entire communities could shift at the worst possible end of the scale. You could have community shifts from corals to algal communities. Marine mammals can be rerouted. That could also get into shipping right. channels, and that can impact tourism. You could have fisheries moving. That impacts tourism as well. Local fisheries, commercial fisheries. It's going to have an impact everywhere. Is it reversible? I mean, reversible. I mean, I know, I know the damage is done, but if if the weather patterns change and the water cools down again, do these do these things have a way of repairing themselves or is damage done, damage done? No, that's great. Great question. So coral bleaching, at least for the ecosystems we focus on, coral bleaching is not a death sentence. It's kind of like getting a cut on your arm. But if you cut your arm and then you dump acid on it and then you throw sand on it and then someone kicks you. And again, all of these different stressors keep hitting your arm. It doesn't heal. And then the wound gets worse and you get an infection. So with coral reefs, repeat damage, repeat heat, repeat stressors cause the bleaching. Then it can cause disease or it can skip the bleaching. If the sea surface temperature is hot enough, it can skip straight to coral death. There are ways, though, that it can be mitigated and resolved if the stressors minimize. And of course, I, I know that shifts us into the discussion of climate change Indeed, and yeah. the, the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Right. And we can't really talk about this without talking about that, right, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, this this can be written off as an anomaly, as a one-off. We're seeing a lot of extreme weather this year. It's easy just to turn your head away and say, well, you know, next year will be different. And potentially it will be. We won't be talking about this. But this, I gather, anyone who who studies this stuff for a living and has looked at it for long enough to know, this is yet another wake-up call. For many of us, it is. I mean, we've been trying so hard to push the same message over and over again that there are natural warming patterns. We are very clear on that. But this is rapid. And it is so rapid that we haven't witnessed this level of warming over time, dating back thousands of years. Are we sure it's not going to be worse and it's not going to happen faster? Maybe it doesn't. Again, it, it produces so many questions, but it's a major wake-up call to, you know, to the United States and its partners that we really have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We really have to reduce greenhouse gas concentrations already in the atmosphere if we want to even attempt to slow down what potentially could be disastrous effects to mankind across the globe and not just to the Western Hemisphere. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time today, Ben. It's been a pleasure. 
In the last half hour, we talked about how hot the water has been, how hot the world's oceans have been this summer. There's some particularly egregious examples in Florida right now where water temperatures down around Key West and so on are up at like 30 degrees, 33 degrees. That's like bath water. It's really, really warm. Uh, and just why that is, it hasn't been much rosier above the water either. It's already been, um, the, June was the hottest month on record. Uh, smashing the old uh, mark by nearly a quarter of a degree, which if you think about records, temperature record, that's a lot. That's a lot. And in July, we've already seen the hottest day, uh, the hottest day on earth broken three times this month alone. It's also shaping up to be the hottest July on record, unsurprisingly. And uh, people are baking, right? We talked about it earlier this week in, in the U.S. Southwest. Like Phoenix has had uh, temperatures above 110 Fahrenheit all this month, 21 days straight. Uh, it's been just absolutely roasting in southern Europe, the Middle East, China as well. Beijing has had a whole string of really, really hot days. The head of the World Health Organization even thought it was wise to talk about it. Exposure to excessive heat has wide-ranging impacts for health, often amplifying pre-existing conditions and resulting in premature death and disability. Um. I didn't want to talk again about, about what's happening because I think we've kind of established what's going on. What I was really interested in is how are people going to react to this, right? Because obviously, you know, depending on your, you know, people have different views on climate change and so forth. Um, and of course, people are entitled to their views. I think the scientific consensus is that it's happening, uh, how much it's driving all that we're seeing. You know, that's, uh, again, if you talk about anything like climate change in a forum such as this one, you'll get people telling you that it's not happening. And 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 I get that. But I think the scientific consensus is that it is and that it is, it is exacerbating uh, situations such as this one. Certainly, it is not the only thing at play here, but it's certainly making things worse. But how are we going to react to it? That's what I was interested in. This isn't about big governments that you don't like. Say you, say you really despise the current federal government. Well, obviously, anytime they talk about anything, you're not going to like it, right? It's just the way politics works. But what if this wasn't about politics? What if this was about something a lot more basic? Um, you know, basically following the, you know, the following the Joneses, basically, is that we are always more likely to act because people close to us, either family or neighbors, are doing something be than because a big government or a government period thinks it's a good idea for us to do so. My next guest says the strongest predicator of our willingness to support, say, climate-friendly policies like solar panels or EVs or whatever is the number of people we know who've already done so. So could peer pressure in this case, could a shift towards wanting to do these things, not because some government tells you they're a good idea, but because you think they're a good idea and you're watching someone down the street say, and you think, hey, wait a second, that looks like a good idea to me. It's not an entirely new concept, obviously, but it's a, it's a novel one. And Robert H. Frank is the, is the guest. He's a professor emeritus of management and economics at Cornell's Johnson School of Management, a longtime New York Times contributor and author of several books, including The Darwin Economy, Success and Luck, which is all about why meritocracy is a myth. And uh, his most recent book is called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Robert Frank, thank you for your time. My pleasure, Brent. And this is what I wanted to talk about tonight was this whole idea of peer pressure, because we always think of peer pressure as being uh, something that forces us to do either something negative <laughs> or something that is sort of keeping up with the Joneses, right? If they have a big house, I'll have a big house. If they have a big car, I'll get a bigger car. But you think that you can actually put this to, a put this to work in a more positive way? 
Yeah, you're you're certainly right that the term has a negative valence generally. Uh, uh, and I think that's interesting, because if we're so inclined to be influenced by what we see others do and say, why is that? Uh, we we evolved in, in tough conditions. If, if we have an impulse to do something, it's usually true that that was helpful to us during the times we evolved. Uh, it may not be helpful anymore uh, because conditions have changed or it's still helpful to us. And I think if you if you examine the consequences of being attentive to what others do and say, uh, on balance, they probably are positive. Uh, we confront lots of novel situations. It's it's a tremendously complicated world out there. Uh, I, I know very little about it, but in the aggregate, we know quite a bit about what's going on out there. And, and watching what other people do is very informative. Of course, you want to encourage your kids to avoid stupid uh, examples set by friends. Uh, that's important. But being influenced by others is is not on balance a bad thing. One of the, the reason that it, it was of interest as well, I mean, I think what we're seeing, I mean, the stories about surrounding sort of extreme weather have become very, very prominent this summer. Uh, how does that work as far as the idea around tackling climate change and how peer pressure can work into that? Because one feels that we're approaching, one would think, some kind of tipping point about how people yeah. regard the costs of all of this. Well, no, no one's happy about the news reports of late. I mean, when there's an awful lot of suffering that's uh, that's rolling by in the in the newsreels. But one side effect of it is that we're not going to be much troubled going forward by the kind of statements from climate denialists that stood in the way of taking action in years past. We had a a senator here who brought a snowball onto the Senate floor as proof that there couldn't be. Uh, global warming going on because normally in late February there wouldn't be snow in Washington, uh, and and here was a day that there was some. Nobody would do that today. You'd be laughed completely out of the arena if you tried that today. I think everybody now understands that the the weather is much more chaotic now as a result of the overall warming trend. Uh, there are going to be uh, extremes on both sides, but the overall trend is is for things to get warmer and and more volatile and there are going to be expenses to pay beyond our comprehension if we don't get uh, more quickly on the path to zero emissions we always think of this as a top-down thing that policymakers will then tackle this but reading through what you've written one gets the impression what, what one should be looking at is the bottom up how is this affecting individuals in their neighborhoods what kind of conversations are they having with their friends and yeah how that, does that peer pressure work into it Individual steps like buying a hybrid car or changing your diet, uh, that's that's uh, totally futile, according to the conventional economic view. Uh, that used to be my position, too, but but I've changed my mind about this largely as a result of studying behavioral contagion. And and the big houses we build, the massive cars we drive, we do those things in part because they're not priced correctly. We don't take into account the damage of the emissions those things cause. But also, we uh, we do it because that's what peers do. And what that means is that anything that changes a person's behavior is going to have a much, much bigger effect uh, in the aggregate than traditional economic models allow for. You know, I'm I, I, I think the most vivid example of that I've seen is is from a study of solar panel adoption. 
the the researchers were able to determine that if I put uh, a set of panels on my roof, that in four months' time, there'll be a copycat installation. That means one that wouldn't have occurred except for the fact that somebody saw mine. Then we've got two after four months. After eight months, those two spawn copycats of their own. So we've doubled. Doubling every four months after two years, uh, the fact that I put up a panel installation on my rooftop on January 1st means two years later, there are 64 installations. Uh, And that's just in the same postal code. Uh, we have closer friends and family members uh, in, in other areas. So probably our influence is even more dramatic than that number suggests. So, so yeah, I think once we start talking about it, individual changes in behavior can ramify explosively across uh, social networks. And you did it, right? I mean, I, I, I was watching something you did with PBS where you, you there wasn't enough sun at your place, at least not the, where you, your, your main residence, to be able to buy solar panels. But instead, you purchased a little bit of a solar panel farm. Right. And uh, since nobody can see panels on our roof, I thought, well, we won't be affecting anyone uh, by that. But then the, the company that sold us our share in a solar farm also was willing to give us a sign that we could put out front saying that we had bought a share in a solar farm. <laughs> and now we've got several neighbors who've done that, too. What's really interesting about that is it sort of transcends politics, because in some ways it doesn't matter who you vote for. I, mean, I suppose there's some people, all this, this furor over, over, you know, the over gas stoves and so on. People, you know, political lines are quite uh, distinct these days. And yet still, if you say to someone, wow, you know, I saved X amount of money a month with these panels, I think a lot of people would forego their politics and put the panels up and just sort of navigate the politics of it after that. Sure, you see somebody do it, and and you and you ask yourself, uh, what does she know? Uh, how come she knew that was the right thing to do? Uh, and then you investigate, and and in fact, it is the right thing to do. You'll save enough money to pay it back in short order, and and you'll help the planet uh, to boot. What what's not to like? Robert Frank is a professor emeritus of management and economics at Cornell University. He's also the author of numerous books, including Success and Luck, which I highly recommend, which calls into question the whole idea of the meritocracy. But Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work is the latest, and we're talking about that this half hour. Um, to talk about you. I mean, you've looked at, you've thought about a lot. This book came out a few years ago and you've thought a lot about it in different contexts since I know a, a bit about the carbon tax, because that's been a real bone of contention in every country. Well, most countries, especially in Canada, uh, where it's brought up, uh, there are those who vehemently object to it, especially with, with uh, the, the rise in the cost of living. Uh, tell me a bit about your thoughts around peer pressure and the carbon tax and how that might work. Yeah, I think uh, the carbon tax, uh, had we adopted one at the dawn of the industrial age, uh, would have meant that we wouldn't be facing anything like the climate crisis we're looking at today. The reason we emit greenhouse gases is that it costs money to filter them out from the activities we engage in, and, and it's costly to do that. If we were taxed for doing it, uh, we would respond by either adding filters when it was cheap to do that or switching to alternative sources when when we could do that. And that's a really very easy environment in which to respond. You just your incentive change uh, and you you alter your behavior. Often it's it's imperceptible. The burden you face is, is, is very small. But in the case of the carbon tax, it strikes me as political malpractice of a high order that leaders weren't able to sell that idea to their constituents. And the re- reason is that most of the emissions, this is from an Oxfam study, uh, the top 10 
10% of the income earners worldwide account for half of all carbon emissions that, that occur. That means that if we were to tax carbon, the bulk of the revenue from the tax would be coming from high earners, people in the top 10%. If we designed a careful rebate scheme, we could see to it that 90% of all households got more money back each month than they paid in carbon taxes. They'd still have an incentive to change their behavior. Plant-based diets would become relatively cheaper. People would have an incentive to switch to them or emphasize them more than they had in the past. As people began to change those kinds of habits, uh, that would transmit from family member to family member, from neighbor to neighbor. It wouldn't any longer seem rude to serve guests a vegetarian meal if you learned how to cook a good one. And we would have seen uh, an explosively effective response to this if we had adopted that policy much sooner. It's not too late to do it now and to argue about the fact that there will be hardships when the only people who would be paying more in tax would be people at the top of the income ladder. And those are the very beneficiaries who'd reap most from the the cutback in emissions since the damage from weather is causing them the, the lion's share of all monetary damages. What's not to like? Why haven't we done this? Well, I mean, part of it is because, first of all, the term carbon tax in of itself is is, is problematic, I think, for a lot of people. <laughs> they they look at the word tax and, and clearly, I mean, it's, it's been fodder for a lot of politicians as well to say, you know, this doesn't work. Look, emissions are still going up. What about China? So on and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for people to sort of recoil uh, at the term at first glance. Uh, from an economics point of view, though, how would you argue to those? How would you get around the politics of this when it's so ripe for politicians to point at it and say it has to be done away with? Okay, Ben, let's start by calling it a carbon fee. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, people don't mind paying fees when they get something useful. If you're putting carbon into the air, you're using up a valuable resource. So paying paying a fee for that might be a better way to describe it than to call it a tax. But again, you don't have to be a, a brilliant rhetorician or, or political analyst to be able to explain in plain English or in plain French to your constituents that if we adopt this measure, you're going to get more money back in a rebate check each month than you paid in additional taxes on carbon through the things you use. You're going to have an incentive to change your behavior in ways that will benefit the, the planet. And you'll be better off in every other way than before. Why wouldn't you want to vote for that? I can't understand how, how politicians were so inept as not to be able to sell that. Is there any way to take the politics out of it to try? I mean, I know how it's a much, you know, it's a more divisive issue in the U.S. than it is in Canada in some ways. And yet, you know, we see the same sort of rhetoric coming. Sometimes the feeling is that those who who champion a, car, a carbon fee, for instance, aren't alive enough to the to the reticence towards it and just say, well, how could you not like this? Uh, whereas on the other side, there's sort of, you know, this is taking money out of your pocket for no good reason. It's just a leftist conspiracy. Um, so it feels like there's a lot, a lot of room in between for compromise, but you don't see a lot of it. Yeah, I, I find one thing that seems to help in conversations about what I'll now call a carbon fee is uh, the evidence that suggests how much more effective it would be than the traditional economic models imply. Uh, when we study these things, we look at the response uh, of people in isolation to the price changes and things that they buy. Uh, what we don't take into direct account in our estimates is the 
indirect effects of those initial changes in behavior. So if if I respond by buying a smaller car, for example, people have been buying bigger cars for the last 40 years. If I respond to the, the carbon fee by buying a smaller one, that means everybody else who bought a bigger car because they were worried I might run into them with my big car has less of a reason to buy a big car. Uh, I, I'm not as big a threat to them. And that's a small effect at first, but as people respond to it and more and more people cut back on the size of the vehicles that they buy, then the reason for buying a big vehicle in the first place tends to evaporate. We could, I won't say tax vehicles by weight, let me say charge a fee for vehicle registrations by weight. Uh, people don't need big vehicles uh, in most cases. Some people do need them. We shouldn't ban them. We should respect autonomy by saying, if you need a big vehicle, buy one and pay the tax reflecting the harm that you impose on others by driving one. Uh, that's fair. Uh, and other people res will respond by saying, I don't need a big vehicle. Why would I pay that fee? I'm going to buy a smaller one. Well, Robert Frank, we'll leave it at that. Uh, putting peer pressure to work under the influence is the name of the book. Thank you so much. What a pleasure, Ben. 